It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. You know what it's like. It could be Christmas, a birthday, anniversary, the date is coming, and you know you have got to order the present in order for it to get here on time. I don't know what this like is like because I don't procrastinate like you do. That's true. It is how government works. It is how government, and it's crossover time. We are looking at next Thursday, May 4th. Legislators know they have got to get those requests in to get those bills heard in committee, and they got to get it through a chamber in order to stay eligible. And this week, we saw a lot of movement in a lot of committees in both the House and the Senate. Yeah, when we were talking about the podcast, we were like, there weren't a ton of big bills. So this entire session, we'd been seeing a couple big ticket things pass every week, whether they were Senate priorities or House priorities. That was what the week was centered around. But this week, it's just a sprinkling of everything. Most folks don't know that there are thousands of bills filed by legislators every biennium, and they can be big bills, little technical changes in legislation. But those bills have to move. They just can't sit in committee because if you don't meet this deadline, the leadership uses the deadline to kind of filter out the things that are not important. So right now, all 170 legislators are going to chairs and saying, will you hear my bill? But sometimes Sky, the chair or lobbyist might say, you know, your bill's got a lot of problems. And we're hearing a narrative, let's call it a theme in committees, which is? We'll continue to work with stakeholders on this bill. The bill's not perfect. Right. You hear the bill, this bill's not perfect, but we're going to work on it throughout the process. We just need to make crossover. But by the way, you got to build up some trust in order to do that. If you're one of those lobbyists where you say, yeah, and then you don't work with them, that's a whole other problem you've created for yourself. Definitely. We're seeing a lot of PCSs in committee. You know, when we first launched the podcast, that was one of our first explainers. I know. We had a lot of folks ask us, what is a PCS? I actually got a text message this week from a listener saying, can you explain what a PCS is again? What is the PCS? PCS means a proposed committee substitute. And let's say you have a bill that it's introduced in version one of the bill. And there are some changes that need to be made. Well, you can do that in a few different ways. You can run amendments to the bill, or you can sweep them all up into one bill and make a new version of that bill and introduce that new version in committee. And when that happens, it is called a PCS. So they don't show up on the dashboard until after they've been approved and then read in. But there is a little workaround, sometimes based on your relationships with legislators. You can get a copy of the PCS early so you know what you're dealing with in committee. You bring up a good point, and that is that legislators get it the night before because the rules process in both the House and the Senate has a cutoff where members of the committee have to have notice a certain amount of time before the committee. So generally, it's like 9 p.m. the night before all of the PCSs and bills will be sent out to the committee members so they know what's coming before them the next day. Big press conference this week, Sky. It was announced that there is agreement between the House and the Senate to include opportunity scholarships and expansion of that program in the budget, I assume. That bill removes the income cap on families to attend private schools. After Wednesday's press conference, it did go through the Senate Education Committee, so that is progressing its way through as well. It will meet crossover even if they were to put that in the budget. It's a controversial issue. And by the way, I'll go ahead and put a plug in for Tim Boyum's Tying It Together podcast. It was two weeks ago. He did a great pro and con. If you want to get both sides of the argument, listen to that. We will hear more about that over the coming weeks. It is an interesting debate, passionate arguments on both sides. 
Last week, we talked about the community college bill. This is about the appointees of trustees, shifting that from the executive branch to the legislative branch. We said last week that we thought the bill was certain to pass the Senate. It may have some problems in the House, but we got indications this week that the bill is maybe fledgling, maybe just delayed, but it certainly doesn't seem to be on the glide path it was last week. So this week, a new community college president was named, and that's Dr. Jeff Cox, and he's from Wilkes County. Once he was named, Senator Berger said to the press that took away some of the concerns that we had. They seem to be pleased with the hire, I assume. Seems to be. We saw him on the campus of the legislative complex this week. At least we thought we saw him. Uh, But he seems to be making the rounds right away, getting to know legislators, and I'm sure talking about the community college priorities. We talked last week about how Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson was expected to make his gubernatorial announcement last Saturday, and he did so with quite a lot of fanfare. It was held at the Ace Speedway in Alamance County. Uh, There was a video that was launched prior to the announcement. By the way, that video can be seen on social media. It is a top-notch A1 video. He is doing everything I think he needs to do to focus on his message, which seems to be about the economic problems that many families are facing with inflation. He talks about his background growing up, being an untraditional politician, if you will. But what was noticeable to a lot of folks in NC Poll World was that there were a lot of legislators, particularly senators, who were at the event on stage. Many of them spoke Senator Phil Berger, Senator Jim Perry, Senator Danny Britt, Senator Dave Craven, Senator Todd Johnson, Senator Michael Lazara, Senator Benton Solry, Senator Brad Overcash, and Senator Eddie Settle. And then a lot of House members were also in attendance. Let's point out that there is going to be a GOP primary for the governor's race, and that's going to be Treasurer Del Falwell and former Congressman Mark Walker. I'm sure some others might consider getting in, but that got a lot of folks' attention. Definitely. I think that there is a narrative out there that kind of the establishment Republicans are nervous about Robinson and whether them all appearing with Robinson at this announcement kind of settles those concerns or is signaling he will be more centered. I'm not sure. We know that Jim Blaine and Ray Martin put out a poll earlier in the year showing that the lieutenant governor cannot be caught in a primary. And maybe it is just that these legislators are saying, yeah, he's our guy. We got to get behind the winner. We need to unite as quickly as possible. They know that Attorney General Josh Stein, the presumed front runner on the Democratic side, is likely the opponent they're going to face. One indication that Mark Robinson is going to be the nominee is that Attorney General Josh Stein wasted no time responding to the announcement, he was naming Mark Robinson in a series of social media messages, tweets, photographs, and it just seems to be that we are looking at those two, Stein and Robinson, head-to-head from here (laughs) all the way to November 2024. We have an unsubstantiated rumor. Multiple sources on this one. Yep. Congressman Dan Bishop, he was a former state senator, former state house member, we hear is seriously considering a run for attorney general as a Republican. We know attorney general Josh Stein, he's already declared that he's running for governor. This opens up that seat. We know that former Representative Tom Murray is already in that race, but Dan Bishop, who seems to have been everywhere recently, he was at the Representative Trisha Cobham press conference, who we see a lot of his work up in Congress, but he seems to be ready to come back to North Carolina 
and run for statewide office. It feels like we will find out soon. Yeah. Uh, Mark it for about three weeks from now, I guess. Those are the numbers we're hearing. It could be imminent. We know that, you know, they all say this. They got to talk to their family. Of course, they got to pray about it. But uh, as soon as all those boxes are checked, look for an announcement. We had some staffing news this week. Actually, it was last week. We had missed this piece. Uh, Our friend Donald Bryson over at the John Locke Foundation has been named the CEO. I think he takes that helm in May. Uh, The current CEO, Amy Cook, she is retiring. And uh, congratulations to Donald. He's been a guest on the podcast twice, and we wish him well in his new job. With all of this education news this week, and really this year, it seemed fitting for us to sit down with one of the House Education Chairs, Representative Jeffrey Elmore. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Jeffrey Elmore, Welcome to the podcast. To start us off, tell us about your district. Where is your district? Why do you think your district is special? Okay, my district is Wilkes and Alexander County. Um, I am in the northwest corner of the state, so I'm a uh, foothill mountain county. Uh, some fun facts. Um, we're home to North Wilkesboro Speedway, okay. uh, which is going through a revival, and the all-star race uh, will be there in May. Uh, We're the second in apple receipts. We uh, are a large producer of beef and poultry. We have some of the highest agricultural receipts in the western part of the state in Wilkes. So we have a huge agriculture presence in both counties. For our listeners out there who might be unaware of the leadership hierarchy, can you talk about your unique role inside the house? Sure. I'm one of the full appropriation chairs, and what that means is is, uh, I'm one of the chief budget writers. Uh, We all have a section of the budget that we specialize in, and mine is the uh, education portion. Uh, So I'm the chief budget writer basically for the education portion of the budget and the salaries and benefits on the House side. And then um, my role, we go into negotiations, of course, with the Senate um, leaders or the equivalent of me in the Senate. So we talked about this a little bit when you came in. You are a teacher. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how you manage your schedule with the General Assembly? And what do you teach again? I I teach visual art. Visual art. I've taught for 23 years. Wow. At this point. I'm a veteran. I I can't believe it. I'm really not that old, Brian. (laughs) You're not. You're, uh, yeah, 23 years. And you graduated from App State, right? Graduated from App. I was a teaching fellow. That's right. Uh, went through the Teaching Fellows Program, uh, which was uh, excellent. It's an excellent program. And um, ba- balancing it with the General Assembly, I have an arrangement with the school system. In long session, I have to take a semester off. And they treat me um, like I'm in the National Guard, almost like I'm doing service. So I'm on the employment rolls, but I'm not getting paid. So... Mm. I started my unpaid leave around Martin Luther King Day this year uh, so I could come down and work on the budget stuff. Then in short session, I can basically do the entire academic year except for maybe the last two weeks of school. So when you came to the General Assembly, you've been here since 2012? Yes. When you came to the General Assembly as a teacher, did you feel specialized in education or appropriations? How did you come to learn more about education and be able to make these sort of big decisions for the entire state? Well, uh, I took the advice of uh, some of the older legislators, I, and I think that's important for the new members. You need to connect yourself to someone that's been around a long time. And one of them said, you need to specialize in something. And of course, I was concerned with education because I live it every day. And Mm -hmm. these policies seem to filter down. As as a teacher, I never understood really where they came from. You know, who thought of this? Or why are we even doing this? Or it's redundant. So the first thing that I did was I just went through all of the education statutes 
and wow. read all of them, uh-huh. uh, which at that time, um, I know this sounds real hokey. This is very policy wonk. At the time, it was almost like you were reading a stream of consciousness writing. There was no logic to how the statutes were organized. And you could see trends uh, over the decades of whatever was popular at the time. So like there was one section dealing with drug prevention. And you could tell that was from the just say no movement in the 80s. So one thing that I worked on in my tenure is we reorganized all of the ed statutes. So they're actually all of the stuff's together to where you can actually read it. Like it's got a table of contents. So from that point, um, you know, just educating yourself on what's happened over the decades of it. And then the experience of, I'll call it being in the trenches of how this policy on paper is reading, but what is the actual implementation? And a lot of times that's very different, which I don't think a lot of the legislators, when they are writing something for education, realize that it does go through the bureaucracy of things. Right. DPI, then the local level interpretation, then the um, maybe the school-based twist on it. Mm-hmm. And the implementation can be very different than what the actual uh, bill or law states. And then you probably felt that as a classroom teacher, by the time it gets down to you, you have so much on your plate. Did you ever look at these statutes and go, I didn't even know we were supposed to be doing this? Or, I mean, just the applicability of it, I know has got to be frustrating to a classroom teacher. Very. um, Something I worked on this session is dealing with character education. Mm -hmm. And those statutes have been on the books for decades. And I remember going through that as a kid. And I guess that is when those uh, ideas were put into statute. Mm -hmm. So it was popular at the time. But now you know, a few decades later, even though it's still statutory, the implementation of it is just not there because there is a new priority that's come up or a new trend or a a, a new worry. I think in my tenure and what we've tried to do uh, with the Republican majority is we're trying to filter through that bureaucracy Mm -hmm. to where we're trying to empower the teacher, empower the parent, empower the student where the actual learning takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, we're moving in that direction. It, it's a slow process. I, I call public education the brontosaurus. It, you know, it moves very slow and it's very big. As you were talking just now, you were saying there are these different trends, and we've seen some trends this year. What are kind of the education trends that are at the forefront of your mind? Well, I, I think school safety mm-hmm. is something that is on everybody's mind. Sure. Um, it's very difficult for uh, a child to learn or a teacher to teach or any employee in our schools if they do not feel safe. Uh, it's a scary thing that we have to focus on. The, the, the days of open campuses and uh, all the doors unlocked and just basically unlimited access from the community, that those days are long gone now. So uh, that's always a trend uh, mm-hmm. that's moving through. I think there's also a trend now of what role does the parent play in education which in my opinion is a very critical role mm-hmm. I, I mean we're to serve the public and th- these are these p- folks children uh their most precious commodity children are the great a great equalizer mm-hmm. you can be a multimillionaire and have your child or you could be dirt poor and have your child you still have children it, it's right. an equalizer right. and they care for their kids um, I, I've seen so many parents that are in really bad situations themselves, but they want to lift their child out of it. They, they want the best for their kid, even though their life may be in absolute shambles. So I, I think that's a trend right now. And I think COVID brought that along. Mm-hmm. Parents became very aware of curriculum. Uh, what are the kids actually seeing? That, because they were looking at the computer screens with the kid or helping their student through the process and they're like gosh that that math seems difficult or this is a confusing way to look at that or why are they covering that subject matter i've really never seen parents involved at that level normally a parent just asks, is my kid doing all right or are they learning something are they giving you any problems you know behaviorally it's kind of the extent but now because of covid parents are really looking at what what is my child learning and why are they learning that? And is that something that's truly important to help them in their future? 
it reminds me as you're talking about this, just how political some of these issues are. Arguably, there is nothing more political, it seems, than education policy, at least in this town. Maybe not outside of Raleigh, but you seem to bridge that. I see you talking to all lobbyists, uh, advocacy groups that come to you, whether they're administrators, school boards, teachers, and there are many teacher groups out there support personnel. What what did you think of just how political your profession is in politics? At first, I was naive when I started my career. It's very idealistic. You, you know, you, you don't think that's reality. But the, the reality of it is uh, schools at all level, including our universities or community colleges, even K-12, they are public schools. They are in the public square. They are in the public sphere. Because of that, they are political entities. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the politics of it are good. Sometimes the politics of it are bad. I've always been open to hearing folks' opinion on um, what their thoughts are on the immediate needs or a concern. I I love hearing all sides. Uh, I do get a little bit hesitant a lot of times if it is um, programs that build bureaucracy because it's hard for me to connect that to how's that actually implemented in the classroom. How will that directly help a kid? Because education is so political and there are so many groups out there. And I find in that sector of policymaking, the lobbying, there's different strategies out there. There's the lobbyist comes and sees you. And then there's the outlandish stuff where you see it in the newspaper, a protest. How do you feel is the most effective way to have your voice heard if you want to weigh in with you or on education policy or policy in general, for that matter. Direct communication. Uh, I, th- I think the most the thing of most value for me is actually speaking with someone on the phone. Many of my colleagues will say, I have a principal that has real concern. I really don't know how to talk to them um, because it's so in the weeds. I, I really don't understand what they're talking about. I'll take their number and give them a direct call hmm. and, and say, you know, representative such and such asked me to give you a call. What, what are your concerns? That type of communication is key. Yeah. And that's where um, I think true policy can be made because you're talking directly to the people involved. I think one of the worst things you can do is form emails. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Th- those are awful yeah. because we get thousands of these dealing in all subject matter, and also a, I would call it a, attack kind of emails where you really don't have a question. It, you're just almost venting, right. and then you expect a response right. after you've basically cussed me out via email. That is beyond ineffective. Yeah, And uh, I, I think any policymaker wants to know, you know, what's actually going on in my schools uh, what is the problem that you're facing, Mr. Smith, at such and such high school? And uh, that can be in the district. Uh, that could be through a nicely drafted letter. That could be through uh, just a true email. I, I read this, and I'm concerned, and these are the reasons why. That, that Those are powerful. Mm-hmm. And talking to your legislator themselves, mm-hmm. you, you know, yeah. so they know that you are a voter that is following and that you're concerned. I imagine because of your role, your colleagues back home who work with you, is it one of those things where you're back in the classroom and your colleagues are saying, hey, Jeffrey, I want to talk to you about this, or uh, I mean, I got an idea for education, or can you get this thing taken off of me? It's a double-edged sword. (laughs) Um, I try keeping my work environment very separated from the political environment. But I do observe what's going on. Uh, In the House budget, there's a proposal dealing with math, and it was just through pure observation in my schools of the transition from third grade to fourth grade for our kids. They're going from classes of about 15 kids to a class of 29. And then the way the math curriculum is structured, that is when they're going from model-based, where they're doing little drawings and things to come up with answers, to basically uh, arithmetic like we know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's blowing the kids out of the water. You're seeing the math scores just go. Oh, wow. And uh, interacting with my colleagues, I'm like, what What could we do to address this? And a big thing that came out of it was just pure class size. 
it, it, you know, it, it is so hard dealing with 32 kids and these kids are not used to that many yeah. kids in the room and they really want personalized attention. Uh, it's impossible for me to give it at the level that they're used to because of our efforts with read to achieve, which I think has been effective. It, it's moving in the right direction. And a big part of that was the class size and also understanding the transition from elementary to middle school dealing with math they struggle in fourth grade the struggle continues then they're switching schools and those the teachers at the sixth grade level don't know the specifics of the child's problems if they're behind because they've made that huge transition it's not a problem with the kids i think it's a problem with the structure Mm -hmm. it's creating kind of a ripple effect And we have seventh and eighth graders that don't have a a basic understanding of math and our math scores are really low. So that's something that being on the ground and and in the trenches, I I just observed and talked with my colleagues. If kind of like your magic wand question, what, what could help solve this? Yeah. Yeah. To kind of back up a little bit, what made you originally want to run for town council or get involved in politics? I guess this is appropriate. I was pissed off. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was very embarrassing. I was um, in my late 20s. I first ran for office when I was 29. Mm. And at the time, the town council had a mayor that just kind of, I, I don't want to say went off the rails, but we were um, in the headlines in regional newspapers, like the Winston-Salem Journal had a headline that said, all North Wilkesboro Town employees can go straight to hell, (laughs) quoted by the mayor of North Wilkesboro. And and I thought, what an awful image for our community. Because at that time, our community had taken a lot of economic hits. NAFTA annihilated our community. We had furniture factories, uh, textile factories, mirror plants one time we had the world's largest mirror plant located in north wilkesboro we were just economically in uh i don't want to say a bad place but we had declined and the whole community was feeling that way and and then our political leaders are just arguing about uh well i don't like this person on the town council and the town employees didn't do this for me and I, i thought we we just don't need to do that and I thought I could do better. I could do better. And it was funny. I talked with some of the political poobahs when I first started and they said, you'll either come in first or you'll come in last. Mm -hmm. And I came in second. So (laughs) it it all worked. And, um, a fun fact, when I was first elected, it was the first time that the Republicans controlled the town board of North Wilkesboro, Mm -hmm. even though I'm from a deep red area of the state, there was one precinct, one area that was the Democrat bastion. And that was, the town of North Wilkesboro. Mm-hmm. So we finally broke the, uh, what I call the political machine there. And uh, when they read the results, one of the old, she's passed away now, but one of the old line Democrats, her jaw about hit the floor. Wow. Gosh, the 29 year old Republican just got elected to the town council. Was politics something you were interested in prior to being pissed off? Had you followed it at App State or even in high school? Uh, not really, no. Um, I, I never thought I would um, go into politics. I, I think politics is something that finds you. Mm-hmm. I'm always hesitant when a young person says, I want to become a politician. <laughs> like, mm, I, you might want to rethink that because it, I, I think what you see with politics, or, or at least what I want to see in politicians, are, are folks that see a problem and they see how they could be part of the solution. Yeah. And so I would say politics found me. I didn't find politics. You're on the town commission, and then you make a decision at what point to run for the House. At the time, uh, Representative Randleman was um, stepping down. There was redistricting happening, and we were basically a one-county district up to that point. And um, with population shifts and everything else, it was going to take some chunks of the county off and then move up into Allegheny County. And she just felt like she had served several terms and and she felt like it was her time to retire. And she mentioned to me, she said, do you have any interest? And I prayed about it. And uh, that leap, you know, it it is a leap from local level to state level. And I knew just enough to be dangerous because I was president of professional educators in North Carolina. 
which uh, represents about 7,000 teachers. So I dipped my toe down here just enough to kind of know how stuff flows. Mm -hmm. That was about the extent. And I was like, sure, uh, I, th I think I can make a difference because my concerns with uh, education policy, t teacher pay, resources come to the classroom, and we, we did it. Yeah. So how old were you at this point? Oh, gosh, 2012. What is it, 23? I was in my uh, mid-30s, six years on the town board. Yeah, 35. Wow. That's pretty young for a state representative. That yeah. is young, yeah. Yeah, I look older. I'm glad this is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you a funny, uh, former Senator Bob Steinberg, he, he saw me in the hall and we were talking about age. He said, Elmore, what are you, in your mid-50s? Oh, no. <laughs> I said, Bob, I'm 43. I said, it's hard living in the mountains, you know. <laughs> Dancing around, bad weather, and drinking too much liquor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about your career in teaching. There's a lot I admire about you, but one is I feel in the position you're in, you could have cashed in years ago and gotten out of the classroom. You could have had any policy job, lobbyist, administrator. After every session, you go back to the classroom. You must have a love for the students and the education that you provide them. Can you talk about where this all began for you? Children give you perspective. Um, kids are very honest. And, and right now I'm working with elementary age kids. I've, in my career, I've, um, I used to say I spent most of my time at middle school, but now it's elementary. But I've taught at the high school level too. I, I think going back to the classroom, it grounds you. Mm -hmm. You realize what it's all about. Mm -hmm. why, why are we spending all of this money, all of this resource? And it reconnects you to what it's really about. Down, I, I know there's a program, I just read an email, to try to get the legislators in the classroom. Mm -hmm. But that, that's still different. I, I mean, that's visiting in your suit, and you, you walk around, and they want to show you the facilities and, and that sort of thing. But, but actually being in the classroom and interacting with the kids, it, it grounds you. And it makes you realize, hey, what, what is all this work really about and who is it for? When did the light come on for you that you wanted to be an educator? You wanted to go into education? It must have been in high school if you were a teaching fellow. It was, and, and it was kind of by default. I had an open class period, and the um, guidance counselor at the time said, uh, I've got a excellent placement for you instead of you doing a class we would like you to go into the ec self-contained and wow. help the teacher basically be like a ta uh during a mathematics her math her math time ec being exceptional children exceptional children right. and, and it was a self-contained classroom so the, these are lower functioning students so the math was not super complicated that they were working on and um that kind of developed the bug and, and it got to the point that uh, she would even, if there was a substitute, uh, the, I, I would conduct the lesson plans uh, to go through the material with the kids. So that was kind of what sparked it. And then he, he was kind of smart. He f then followed through and said, hey, have you ever considered applying for the teaching fellows? Right. And that was the next step. And uh, then an app with the teaching fellows program at, at the time, very quality program, uh, it energized you. You know, and we toured the state and saw what different systems were like, what uh, uh, size of them, um, demographics, the different areas. That was part of the experience as a teaching fellow. So it, it kept you very enthusiastic uh, mm -hmm. going into it. So it was kind of by default, really. It, it's nothing. It found me. Mm -hmm. I didn't pursue it, but it found me. Yeah. What is your favorite part about being a teacher? And in turn, what is your favorite part about being a legislator? The kids' interaction. See, I'm in a creative environment because I teach art. Mm -hmm. So the kids create, form, come up with their ideas. And when I see a kid that maybe is struggling to get their idea out, and then they get so excited when they produce whatever. Like I love uh, clay work. Mm -hmm. uh, my concentration was in sculpture and painting. So I, I, I throw on the potter's wheel and I used to do these large floor installations. I can weld, do, do all sorts wow. of things. And um, these little ones, you know, they've never touched clay before. And then they, they come and look, I've got a turtle, you know, and they're so <laughs> excited. And I mean, it, it might look like a, a pile of whatever, but to them, it, yeah. it, it is so exciting. 
that that's what that's the best part of doing what I do. Now the um, down here, I, I think the best part's the interaction with the other members. I've learned more about the state as a whole uh, in the building. It, it's unbelievable. We we have the best state in the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, we have the best people. The way that we're growing, uh, creating very active urban centers. But at the same time, uh, my wife and I, we went to the beach uh, over recess for a couple of days. And I said, isn't it amazing that in my district, you can go from Stone Mountain State Park with a beautiful granite-faced mountain with hiking trails and trout fishing. Mm-hmm. And in five hours, you could be here at Atlantic Beach putting your toe in the water. And yeah. you get to see the ships out on the ocean. I mean, what gets better than that? Yeah. The side of you, I've never heard you talk about it, that you also are an artist. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And then what is your life like? I know when you leave the General Assembly, you're going back into the classroom, but what is life like for you back home? you got a family, you've got this career, you've got this full-time legislative job, although it's not officially full-time, but it's got to feel like that. Sure. Busy. Um, I have a stepdaughter at Carolina. She's a junior. My boys are graduating. I have twin sons. Uh, they're graduating uh, high school this year. Uh, one's going to App State, and the other's going to Carolina. So it, between family things and then obligations publicly with the office, like you said, it's full-time, really. Yeah. And then work. I, I sleep some, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> you told me before we recorded today that you slept a lot at the beach. Yeah, pretty much. I just stayed on the couch <laughs> with my uh, dog, Harley, mm-hmm. and we watched uh, documentaries and slept the, most of the time. <laughs> do you get much time to do art, though, for yourself? No, I, I haven't in, in a while, and that is something that I uh, miss and is something I desire to do. That creative outlet, getting it out, uh, it is very important. And that's something that I've had to really sacrifice because Mm -hmm. of my service down here. So you've been down at the General Assembly for a good 11 years. What is something that you could fix if you had a magic wand in our politics today? It could be policy or something about the way the system operates. I think the key is uh, communication and can something actually function Um, a lot of times members they have wonderful ideas especially in education because they went to school you know and many of them were in school so long ago that i don't know if it's really applies to today Mm -hmm. that when they propose something that they really think about how is this applied how can it actually function in a classroom today uh, that would be the biggest thing that um, I would love to see uh, because I want stuff to work. I just don't want stuff to be a, a political pulpit or uh, a, a gotcha kind of thing. I, if we're going to do it, let's do it right and let's make sure that it functions and that it actually helps people, that it doesn't just give you a headline on a blog or in the newspaper, because the way the cycle moves, we go through all of that hassle for you to have coverage for a week on something that you know wouldn't even work Mm -hmm. because you need some political points. I don't like that part. And if I had the magic wand, that, that would be what I would change. Well, Representative Jeffrey Elmore, we appreciate everything you do in North Carolina politics, your leadership in the House. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. I appreciate it, Brian. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. If there was anything left out of this interview, it was the fact that we didn't get to ask Representative Elmore about his run for the lieutenant governor's race. So here's what happened. I was in the building last week and someone asked me, 
who's going to be on the podcast next week? And I said, Representative Elmore, we actually just did an interview with him. And they said, you know, he's running for lieutenant governor. Did he talk about that? So that's when I went and talked to Representative Elmore about that. So we did this interview last week, and I didn't have that news at the time. I wish we got to ask him about it more. I did speak to him some this week about his race. He talked about having an exploratory committee, but all indications are that he is running statewide on the Republican side for the lieutenant governor's race. But uh, Representative Elmore, thank you for being on the podcast. We enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate everything you are doing in the House, especially in that budget room. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Charlotte Public Relations, and they're at CLT Public. And it's a picture of the sign when you enter into either the LOB or the LB. It looks like this is the LOB, the Legislative Office Building. And it has the arrows for members and staff going one way, visitors going in the other door. And then below that, it says, in quotes, slippery when wet. And it says that in front of, right in front of the seal and also over in front of the LOB. It cracks me up every time I read it. Colin Campbell quote tweeted it and said, it's the NCGA's motto. And then Virginia Reed said, that's the actual translation of essay quamvidari. <laughs> and Kirk Osteen said, essay quite slippery. <laughs> I think the air quotes just make it, right? Implies a double meaning. Well, I like when people like send a cake for to be decorated and they put what they want in quotes and then whoever is decorating the cake actually puts it in quotes. Right. So it's funny, you know, that sign tells folks, again, like you said, members go left and then the public goes right. I don't care how hurried I am. I do not walk over the seal. Correct. And there's kind of a legend at the General Assembly. Most lobbyists know this, especially the older lobbyists, that it is bad Bad luck. luck. And folks have said, well, that's just silly. But do you know why it is considered bad luck? It's actually based in reality. Because of the way the offices are upstairs. Mm-hmm. It has something to do with that. The legend is former President Pro Tem Mark Baznight saw a lobbyist walking over the seal. And the Pro Tem said, I want to know who that lobbyist is and what bills they're working on. And we're going to send them to Senate rules to be killed. So the legend is steeped in this. Uh, story that he had this lobbyist bills killed. So bad luck comes from that. The gift that keeps on giving the story that we could talk about every week. (laughs) And we have since I've worked for you for six years (laughs) is your weight loss. Mm -hmm. But we are 12 days into your Ozempic journey. And you won't shut up about it. I choose to measure my time with Ozempic uh, not in days, oh my gosh. but in pounds lost. So how many pounds have you lost in 12 days? 11 pounds. <laughs> so yesterday I was talking to a senator about this. Uh-huh. And so he was asking me, and I said eight pounds at the time. Yeah, I've lost three since then. Okay, congrats. <laughs> and he was asking me how much has he lost? And I said eight pounds. And he said, since when? I said last Saturday. And he's like, like looks up. He's like, yeah, that's not healthy, is it? I'm like, no, no, it's not. Thank you for noticing that. Here's the thing. All right, let's just put the weight loss aside. 
because that's great. And, you know, my clothes are fitting a little better. My suit, you know, I can, it, it now doesn't look like the button on my jacket is going to fly off and hit somebody in the head anymore. I love not thinking about food. We have a bag of Oreo cookies downstairs in this office. If you know me, I will eat Oreo cookies like I'll eat a box of cereal. Like, I will literally dump the whole bag into a bowl, pour milk on it, and eat soggy Oreo cookies until I just can't move. I have not touched one Oreo cookie, and I look at those Oreo cookies like they're a sock. Yes. Yeah, by the way. You and your illegal drugs are working great. No, they're not illegal. They are legal. I found out they're legal, but I have some fears. First, let me just say, we are not sponsored by Ozempic. Ozempic, if you want to sponsor us, call us. We will put, <laughs> we will do it. And you could send some real Ozempic to me. <laughs> so, here's the deal. Compounding of, what's the, what's the active ingredient? Semaglutide. Semaglutide. You can do that because there was a shortage of Ozempic and Wagovi yeah. and all that stuff. Now, my fear is that the FDA is going to not allow compounding. But I get, I get my Ozempic, you know, stuff from a, a website, and it's great. Last night, this happened last night. I made some food after work. Now, Sky, you know this. I love to eat, and I love to eat everything on my plate. Yeah. I, I told Julie, I was like, the stir fry, I just made too much. And all it was was a bowl. I said, would you like half of it? I gave her half of my food, and I'm not a sharer of I food. I know that. I've literally seen this man lick his plate before. Yes. It's bizarre. I love eating and I love food. I know you had some fears that I wouldn't eat. When my stomach growls and it's 12 o'clock, it's time to have some lunch. When my stomach growls and it's 6 o'clock, it's time to have some dinner. But I don't think about food in between. You can so you already tried to switch off of your ca- compound onto brand name. I did. I tried to go with the Wagobi, and then we hit a roadblock. So on Monday, Brian comes in, and I saw it on the calendar, appointment with Wigovi. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> this dude. And so you got on a telemedicine visit, which I could hear upstairs at the office. Uh-huh. And I heard you pretending... <laughs> You had you weren't already on a compound, right? My friend was on. Yeah, you were. There's. It's like when a kid (laughs) is asking a question for themselves, and they say, "My friend would like this advice," and it's really for them. That was you. My friend says, "You know, they're losing a little bit of weight, and that's okay." But what really they said they like is (laughs) that it quiets the food noise in their head. I'm like. Dude, you're such a good liar. Like, it's almost as if I believe you sometimes. Yeah, well, they did approve me for Wagovi, and they took my insurance. So here's the deal with our insurance. We buy our insurance from my wife. She's on the state health plan, but she's on that high deductible plan because she's part-time over at UNC. So it's not even the 70-30 plan. It's just the high deductible plan. So they approved us, they said. I went to pick up the Wagovi last night, and they said with that insurance, it was six hundred and forty bucks. I'm like, I can't afford six hundred and forty bucks. Although I would pay for it if I had to. I'm going back to my two hundred dollar a month Ozempic. Well, it's just now that you know you could get it cheaper because I recall you talking to the Ozempic lobbyist, and he said there's no shortage anymore, but it's pretty expensive. It's a thousand dollars. You said. I don't care. I really don't. At this point, I if I have to, like if we lo- lost the compounding, I would pay for it. It's a mental health drug, if nothing else. I do not obsess about food. We need to make... Oz- so what's going to happen when you get off of it? I'm never getting off of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staying on it forever. I don't even think it's cheating because I think... Somehow my hormones don't work right, and they're always telling me I'm hungry. This just tells those hormones, knock it off. He's not hungry. We'll let him know when we're hung- when he's hungry. I also heard the Wegovi guy ask you if you got your blood work done for this. Yeah, he said we might need to do that down the road. Oh, that's how you're going to get outed. They're going to be like, you're fine. You don't need this. No, because they want you to stay on it. They do. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but... They want to make some money. And I think 
This is an answer to a lot of problems, health problems out there. You know, like I heard a third of the folks on Medicaid are on it for like diabetes and things that are related to obesity. I really think we should be promoting this. So everybody just needs to be shooting up their stomach. I think we need to put it in the water. (laughs) (laughs) Put it in the water because I think... You know, I'm not the only American that's out of control. Are you concerned at all that you're perpetuating weight loss culture here and everyone being skinny? I'm not saying we need to be skinny, but I am saying we do need to be healthy. And I don't think carrying around an extra 40, 50 pounds is good for my heart. I don't think it's good for my bones. I've noticed this going up the stairs. I don't feel my knee like I just feel lighter. I feel like I'm more you know, mobile and things aren't aching. I think this is good for us. I'm not into the whole people need to be skinny and get in bikinis and all of that. And, you know, if you're, bo- if you're happy with your body, you're happy with your body. But if you're not happy with it or you feel like you want to lose some pounds, which is causing other problems, this is the way to go. And if you, you know, I'm not ashamed of that. I like thinking about food. It distracts you from thinking about other things. (laughs) (laughs) I I am like that, too. I use food as a way of dealing with stress. Oh, yeah. I've never been one of those people who, like, when you're going through something, you you know the people that don't eat? Yeah. Yeah. Who, Who are those people? I don't know. People lose weight when they're, like, stressed out or sad or depressed. No, I'm stressed, sad, depressed. I'm going over to El Rodeo and getting me big bean burritos the size of my forearm. And I'm going to eat them, but not anymore. Wow. We are sure that next week will be filled with tons of bills moving. And we will talk about it all next week. Maybe delirious. We'll see. We've had a couple episodes like that. But until then... Please have a great weekend and a great crossover week to everyone involved. And please remember during this time to do politics better.